0: Welcome to the Simple Questions Podcast. This is your host, Dylan Carnahan. The question for this episode is, what is it like to be an FBI agent? You will learn in this episode the process of becoming a special agent, misconceptions surrounding the FBI, and situations that require a SWAT team. Our guest has 25 years of tactical experience as an FBI SWAT team member, has investigative experience in violent crime, terrorism, Foreign counterintelligence and public corruption, and is a two time recipient of the FBI Shield of Bravery. I introduce to you Donald Albrecht. I am about 11 years old when my dad turns on the TV and we begin to watch The X Files. And in The X Files, There are two FBI agents, Agent Mulder and Agent Scully, and that was kind of my first introduction to the FBI. Now, obviously, as time's passed, my perspective has matured and become less fictionalized, but that was my first introduction to the FBI. So, Dawn, can you describe how you became interested and then a part of the FBI? Well, I, I it, it's kind of kind of
1: happened in phases. I was uh, in high school and um, wasn't a very good high school student because I, I, I just uh, I liked to party too much. I was not very well supervised and um, uh, but I did have a great time. And I but this is during Vietnam and I had two brothers that were in Vietnam. And so I my goal was to go into the army and go to Vietnam uh, just like them. And so uh, that was my short term goal. And I didn't really think of it past that point. And then, uh, of course, I, I did go in the service and and the army uh, was in uh, stationed with the 82nd Airborne Division the entire time. Stateside, never went to Vietnam because Vietnam basically ended right right when I went in. Okay. So I uh, was in. I'm considered a Vietnam veteran as a Vietnam era veteran, but obviously not a combat veteran. Or I, ne- I never never set foot in uh, Vietnam, but. <clears throat> When I got out, uh, getting, getting ready to get out, I had occasion to meet uh, to be home visiting with my brother who had just gotten hired by the Secret Service. And he had been out, of course, of the Army, uh, gotten, uh, gotten, high, gotten his college degree, got hired by the Secret Service, and uh, went down to uh, uh, meet him in Springfield, Illinois, uh, from uh, where I grew up in, in Rock Island, Illinois, and um, <clears throat> went down to visit with him and he took me to the range. I met some secret service agents and uh, well, I got to shoot the Uzi and uh, all kinds of good stuff like that. Oh, really fun. And and, and, it, and, it, and and it was one of these typical situations where suddenly something opened up to me that I had not considered is that I could be in, in federal law enforcement if I could get my college degree. Mm-hmm. I said, I said, well, now that, that is something I think I could do. I think I could have fun doing that. So I've always been interested in, in you know, being a police officer because I, I just kind of I gravitated to that type of thing. I had a lot of a lot of respect for them. I, I, I you know, but I, I I probably toyed with the idea a few times. But when I when I actually saw my brother had had accomplished it, uh, I thought to myself. I said, "This is this is within my reach." So I, yeah. Long story short, I went to college, got my degree. Uh, you know, got I had a, I had a degree in business because I had to have a job when I got college. So I, you can't just get hired by any law enforcement agency. On the drop of the hat you, you very rarely mm-hmm. does that happen it takes usually months uh, if not years and in my case it took four years and um, I was uh, I had applied to everybody that carried a badge and a gun I had a college degree but they always hired guys who were experienced and um, I was always in the, the top you know finishers and that type of thing but uh, but my goal was to get into federal law enforcement and then there was that was back in the 80s, and um, uh, Reagan came in during the recession and had a hiring freeze for two years. So that stopped everything in his tracks and then come along in uh, 1983, uh, resumed the process and um, I got in the FBI in 1984. Uh, went to the Academy, I ended up in uh, San Diego first office. So it was, uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. I got, I said, this was a, uh, a good start uh, being there. I, I, First got assigned to foreign counterintelligence, realized that I didn't have the temperament or the or the patience or, or any of the attributes I needed to be a foreign counterintelligence agent. So I decided uh, to request to get transferred to violent crime. And that's where I first made my uh, debut in violent crime investigations. And uh, there was a match made in heaven. So I, uh, I, I, I did violent crime and I got on the SWAT team in San Diego. And uh, because that was that was just a natural fit for me. I I'd always been, you know, interested in, uh, you know, team sports, that type of stuff. So I thought, well, you know what? This will be uh, a chance to and I could shoot what, what the really the driving thing was to, to be a be on a team and to be able to shoot uh, a lot, and which I like to I like to shoot. So mm-hmm. and I, I was taught how to shoot by the FBI. And I learned I learned it quickly and I, and I was pretty good. And so I, I said, you know what? Uh, any skills I pick up here will keep me alive on the street. So I, I ended up getting, um, uh, you know, on the team and then uh, of course working violent crime the entire time I was in San Diego and had some great cases, uh, unbelievable cases actually. And then, uh, you know, and then of course you're only there for a short time, like three, four years, and then you're off to a big office. And then I end up in New York and, and then, you know, and then my, my life goes on from there. But a snapshot is that I, I went from, uh, uh, San Diego to New York. Uh, when you get to New York, everything, they plug you in where they need bodies and you you got you no, know, Hey, I thought, Hey, you know, I work violent crime. Maybe that's where I'll work. Now nah, yeah. it just, it just so happened they needed people on terrorism. So I went to work, uh, international terrorism. I uh, did that for like, you know, like four years and, uh, had an opportunity to, uh, break away and, uh, do, uh, an undercover assignment for six months, did that, came back. And then I, then I got back to violent crime. I, I got on the fugitive squad in New York and worked that uh, for the remainder of my time in New York. And then eventually got senior enough to where I could pick where I wanted to go. And, uh, how the, how it works. In the FBI is they, the senior guys retire from these small to medium sized offices. Well, they retire all over the FBI, but the, the shortage is critical in these small to medium sized offices. Mm-hmm. So they backfill. Uh, those retirements with uh, senior agents who are the veterans basically from bigger offices who want to get transferred back to their you know, region of their home home uh, state or something like that. So yeah. I was being from Illinois. I I didn't want to go back to Illinois. So I, I decided I wanted to go to a place where my children would have some opportunities. And um, I picked a large city like Kansas City, uh, but not too large. Like, you know, Chicago would be just like trade New York for Chicago, that's no, no good deal. But I picked Kansas City because it was one of the most violent cities in the, in the United States per capita. And I said, well, this will be a good place to work. And then, but yet I can live, uh, you know, in the suburbs and my kids have good school. So yeah. it, it kind of filled the, filled the gap. And, but uh, then I, you know, worked, work out here. I, they stuck me on white collar crime. Uh, I got stuck working that for a while, which it wasn't bad. I, I, I learned a few things and, and uh, did well. Eventually, I uh, was able to be transferred to uh, the gang squad and uh, worked that for a bit. And then uh, they were, they, were uh, they had openings on the Fugitive Task Force. And I ended up going over there. And of course, during this time, I'm working gangs for, for like a year or two. I worked gangs, but then I, I, got, I was working bank robberies and in here and extortions and kidnappings, things like that. And then um, we actually started this Fugitive Task Force, which had been going on for quite a while but it was kind of like a violent crime slash fugitive task force. We did everything. And so mm-hmm. I not only worked, you know, cases, but I also tracked fugitives with the uh, police officers and it was exactly the same. It was just a smaller version of what, what I did in New York. So, uh, uh, it, would, it was a lot more action because we're right on the state line. And so mm-hmm. we constantly chasing guys back and forth across the state line making it a federal, federal violation. And then, um, and I did that up until, the time I retired and uh the uh, and, I, and I was also on SWAT in New York and also I had some great missions in New York uh probably one of the one of the bigger ones I've ever been on and then um uh then I was and then of course when I got to Kansas City I continued my time on SWAT up until I got too old to do it uh but I was uh, my last few years I was a team leader and then be uh I got all I I retired from that and uh just work cases and, uh, finished my career that way. But, uh, it, and had a lot of interesting assignments that way, going overseas, uh, Afghanistan, things like that. So I've had, um, I had a pretty broad base career, uh, yeah. in terms of, in terms of violent crime in three different offices, but, um, uh, SWAT also, I mean, I served on SWAT three different offices. So, um, I got to see quite a bit of the FBI's programs, uh, uh, from from my vantage points
0: what a what a career and you know for a twenty eight tenure twenty eight year tenure right a lot of different yeah. areas so dawn to the the uninitiated I mean you kind of mentioned your career what's a what is a typical career progression look like for for a special agent?
1: well it it, it, it kind of centers around, used to center around transfers. But, uh, okay. cause, uh, cause we're the need, the needs of the FBI basically. And it's, um, it changed it constantly. One thing it's constant is change. And so it changed completely. When, when I was in, there's always been a critical shortage of people in big offices. They, they, um, they need, cause that's where the bulk of the work is done. We have like, I think we're up to like 17 of the largest offices are where we all the manpower goes. And, um, uh, like when I was in, it was, it was called a top 12. And then uh, over time, when I first came in, it was top 12. And then, and then it went up to 15 and, and on up to 17 things. I like, could be 18 for all I know now. But, but these are the largest offices in the, in the country. And so when you get out of the academy, you're going to be assigned to one, of, one to a small to medium sized office to learn how to train, uh, how to how, get your training, get, go through your probation period. Uh, you'll be assigned to a senior agent. Uh, you work with a veteran. He teaches you the the culture of the FBI, the the uh, uh, you know the the ins and outs of investigation. Make sure that you uh, get time in court, testifying, things like that. And then, uh, you know, go through all the the checkpoints of uh, you know processing um, evidence and and uh, uh, crime scenes and whatnot. And then and then of course being in front of a judge. Uh, uh, filing complaints testifying uh, in in court uh, hearings and, and that sort of thing and basically get you rounded out and then and then of course as you get experienced you get more complex cases and then um, and then of course and like to say I'm all referring to my time okay in yeah. my time this was uh, when I first I think back in the early 80s you spent a year and a half in your first office then you went to a big Then they uh, stretch that out to like three, three or four years. And that's what I did. I had three and a half years in San Diego, right to uh, New York. And that's where I stayed until I became senior enough to transfer to Kansas City. And that's on a seniority basis. So there's a list of people who um, uh, go, you know, you can want to go someplace like Kansas City. You put your name on a list and it goes by seniority. And because New York was such a difficult place to staff, because nobody wants to go there. In fact, during my time, New York was uh, not uh, atypical of a lot of the big offices. But it, but it was a, the problem in New York was a, it was acute that every four agents that got orders for New York, only one stayed for any length of time. It was uh, the first the first agent like, a, like one agent out of four would get his orders and he would quit because oh, new york wow. was so expensive and was just it's, a, it's considered a hardship and uh because it was cost of living and the commute and the you know the, the work the city's dangerous and in fact i was there during one of the most dangerous times in the, his, the city's history i think it's worse it was worse then than it is now which is saying something but it was at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic oh, yeah. and um uh, that back then um, an agent would get his quit quit when getting one agent would quit when getting his orders a second agent would quit after he did his house hunting tour and said well there's i can't live i gotta, I gotta live you know 80 miles out so until we weren't able to afford a house and you know these are agents that are barely making uh you know back then were gs10s third well by that time i was a 12 i think i got I think i got i think if you get went to new york no matter what your uh, uh, rank was at that time you got promoted to a gs-12 because of the cost of living wow. so i came there and i think I got my gs-12 about five months early. okay and so i i ended up becoming a gs-12 that's still i had to live 80 miles out wow. i lived in i lived in philadelphia essentially i lived in the northeast suburb of philadelphia that's where i and i drove through newark and um, um through philly newark and then into new york uh, every day for 80 miles each way and I did that, you know, the entire time I was in New York. Now, backing up, one agent, one agent would quit and get his orders. One agent would quit after doing his house hunting, uh, tour and then uh, realize, hey, I can't, there's nothing that I can afford. And then the third agent would quit after doing about a year in New York. And they'd say, you know what? I can't take this. I got to go, you know, yeah. but for my family, whatever. Uh, they, they would bail out. But the fourth agent would stay, and that was me but there was a reason for that. There was, yeah, I would have stayed, I think no matter what, but um, they did finally say, you know, in order to stop this bleeding of personnel, you know, they spent a lot of money to hire us, to yeah. recruit us, hire us and train us. And uh, we, they said they can't, we can't lose like, you know, 75% of all the people we're transferring to New York are not lasting more than a year. If that, you know, from zero to one year. So they said we got to do something. So they came in and they they created a thing called a demonstration project, where they went in and they said we're going to pay the the agents in New York 25% more um, uh, per year than uh, than than they would normally get to see if that can staunch the flow of the bleeding of the of the uh, personnel. And it was a five-year project, and it worked. And I was a beneficiary of that. I'd done a year already without it. And that was bad enough. But once that money started coming in, then it was tolerable. And uh, I couldn't move any closer because, you know, uh, cost of living and, and housing is still uh, pretty bad. But at least um, I wasn't living paycheck to paycheck. I could actually get ahead of my bills for a change. And because, But we had literally had agents living in cars and uh, that kind of stuff in, in New York, especially as a um, <clears throat> If there was any, uh, you know, people would, people would live too far out and they couldn't, they couldn't drive back and forth. So they would just sleep in their car and come back to work, you know? So it would just, it was that bad at one time back in the, back in the eighties. Uh, and, and then when we uh, finally got the money then it started to turn around and then of course the proof was in the pudding, the people stopped. Um,
0: the quitting. turnover rate dropped.
1: Right. And, and so, and then it, then it, then it kind of got to the point where people would volunteer to come to new york well the, the project worked so well they decided that and this was of course this was a problem across the federal law enforcement spectrum and so the um, uh the people in newark new jersey weren't getting any money but they had to pay the same you know prices that everybody else did and they had the same problem they didn't have as bad a commute but but they were you know they had most of the other things that we did so they, uh, they, they came up with a cost of living adjustment for law enforcement. It's, just, it's been in public law now. I forget what the number is, but it's been in ever since the 90s. And um, it has made the difference. So every, every uh, uh, federal law enforcement officer across the country gets a um, stipend, if you will, to match the cost of living in that area, to match what. His civilian, or not a civilian, but his local and state counterparts are making because there were we were making less than the garbage men in New York, and that that was that's a fact. And um, and there was and and we would make less than um, a lot of um, you know, like say a a, a a sergeant or lieutenant in the police department would make more than we would. And so uh, they made it so a captain in in the, in a police department was the baseline for our, for all FBI agents because we had you know a lot of us had. Advanced degrees and everything, so it it was, but based on the education level and the type of complex investigations they do, they said they said we're going to base it, we're going to tie it to what a captain in in the local police department makes, and we're going to match that salary, and that's that's basically what they end up doing. So that made it New, New York more tolerable.
0: Yeah, that's that is wild, Don. I think it would be hard for people nowadays to imagine, you know, an FBI agent having to sleep in a car because the cost of living so high because that wasn't calculated in when they were transferred. I mean, that's, yeah, that's wild.
1: But people living like with their family members in Connecticut or, or Vermont or, uh, you know, way out in Pennsylvania. That's, you know, I was in Pennsylvania. It was, like I said, it was that when I right before I went to New York and I got my orders in in 83 fall, fall of 83. And, um, I, uh, I started, you know, back then we didn't have internet, or anything, so you had to write to uh, the chambers of commerce and, you know, get, and, and realtors and get, and get information that way. And I remember reading uh, some information that, that said that the prices in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where I was living, had gone up 28% that fall. And I said, oh, for Pete's sake, my timing is always perfect. That was, you know, buy high, sell low, you know, so. I sure enough, I got there and, and if the prices went up that much there, the reason was because everybody who couldn't afford to live in New Jersey moved to Pennsylvania. And then of course that drove prices up. And, and that was the case up and down the uh, Delaware River. Everybody who worked in New York City or New Jersey and couldn't afford to live there lived across the river in Pennsylvania and then commuted it all uh, into the into the city or into into other places in New Jersey. So it was just the way it is It's the way it is on the East Coast um, I just came back mm-hmm. from this weekend from from New York City it's a madhouse it's absolute madness I don't know how I got friends that still live back there they can't take it they yeah. uh, they're born and raised there but um, but they're just I was just back there for a SWAT 50th SWAT reunion it was the FBI SWAT started in 1973 and uh, the New York team had a celebration that we on all these all the guys are on the New York team came back and and uh, we had this big party. It was a lot of fun, but it, but <laughs> I'm talking to these guys that are retired there, and they're like, you know, I can't, I got to get out, but their family's there, their kids are there, yeah. Like that. Now, some of my aging parents, you know, so they're kind of trapped in a way, but they're just, and they said, it's just a madhouse, and of course, you know, I, I walked through the streets, and we went to Spark Steakhouse, which was where uh, Paul Castellano was killed, uh, and back in like, I think it was 82 or something like that, but um uh but walking the, we walked about a mile on the streets and it was just absolute bedlam just as congested and crowded as i ever remember and, and the traffic was unbelievable you can't take a car to new york no way no way can you take a car into new york you have to and that's what we took a train in and then we walked but it, it's but that's you know that's just the way it was back then
0: yeah. i
1: remember uh, even back when i was there We had assigned a bureau car and we'd get in the bureau car and and I said, you know, brand new agent in New York. I said, you know what? I'm going to go hit up. I got about six leads. I got to cover up in Manhattan. So myself and another uh, new agent in New York would uh, jump in a car and off we go. And between the two of us, we each got exactly one lead covered that day. It took that long to get through the traffic. Wow. No parking. One of us would have to sit in the car or drive it around while the other one did the lead. And it was, it was absolute nonsense. I mean, and we had, we had preferred parking with a placard, a police placard, but you couldn't, you still couldn't find a place. If there's no place to park, then there's no place to park. So it was just, it was just chaos. And like I said, I, I I learned to appreciate other parts of the country that aren't so, aren't so crazy, but it was uh, like, like I said, there's a reason why they, they uh they consider new york to be a hardship tour and but but on the other hand the upside is is the cases are unbelievable
0: yeah the exposure yeah i mean
1: you know we work terrorism cases the real deal we had a a case in new york where it was not my case but i was it was uh, i was it was handled off of uh, the squad uh of that uh, our squads i should say they worked terrorism off the branch I worked on, and, and then I had gone to fugitives at this point, but that's when the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center. And, uh, well, you know, without getting into all the history of that, they bombed it, and uh, that's, you know, that way they, they tried to take it down. They, they failed the first time, and when they did, they, they immediately cranked up another attack, a plan to attack uh, the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, the FBI office, the UN and a fifth place, I think it was like at least four or five places. And they were gonna bomb, uh, drive truck bombs on all these places. So they got below Holland Tunnel, blow the, the Lincoln Tunnel, uh, drive, uh, you know, blow one up in the UN, blow one up in the basement of the federal building where the FBI, uh, which is the federal building um, in New York is the second largest uh, federal building in the United States next to the um, Pentagon. And so they were gonna just basically drive it right underneath the building and blow it up so that was uh luckily we got wind of that and thwarted that uh plot and i was on the team that actually went in and arrested the bombers as they're making the bomb so that was that was probably the highlight of my SWAT career doing doing that one so that was it was like something out of a tom clancy movie
0: yeah so don let's let's take a step back that's a great example there what situations require a SWAT team and how are those operations performed?
1: Well, <clears throat> we have a protocol, not unlike what the local police have. Um, you know, the um, the SWAT, yeah, the old, the old saying is when you need police, you dial 911. When the police need help, then they dial SWAT. Well, it's, uh, and that's kind of, that's kind of what it is. That doesn't make us better. It just makes us different. Um, you know, police officers are you know, uh, you know, the average street agent confront dangerous situations every day. But, uh, you know, the, the the difference between a police officer and an FBI agent, for example, is we often aren't confronted with these rapidly evolving situations that are unknown that all of a sudden develop right there when we make, a, you know, when a police officer makes a car stop or mm-hmm. goes to a domestic dis- violation or domestic disturbance, something like that. Those are the things that just happen. Rapidly and and can spiral out of control in an instant. Well, with the FBI, we are usually working long term investigations, and we are uh, going to take down the subjects in a um, precise way at a given time. We're going to plan. We know you know we're going to have the people there. We're going to make ever stack all the odds in our favor, and when when we'll go in and make our arrest. Well, when we our intelligence is such that it said, okay, we have a <clears throat> um, a very high, dangerous person or persons uh, very heavily armed and likely to resist. And you know, there's a lot of factors you know, that say, okay, this rises to the level of a SWAT operation, and which will bring in uh, assets that, that we normally wouldn't have, personnel we normally wouldn't have, uh, unfortunately, a very higher level of supervision that we normally wouldn't have, which means you know the head of the office, the special agent in charge will be observing and and monitoring the this situation. So, uh, which makes it uh, not necessarily more problematic, but it does la- add another layer of bureaucracy on top of the uh, the 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 case uh, as it as it already has. It's bad enough as it, as it is, but those kind of things tend to slow things down a little bit, which is good in some ways. But the uh, they just and then of course. If we have a situation like if a bank robbery where they take over a bank and then there's a hostage situation where, you know, the police will respond because they're going to get there first. Mm-hmm. But then if it gets protracted, our SWAT team would respond because we we were responsible for bank robberies. So we have joint jurisdiction with say the NYPD, for example, and um, we would show up at a bank robbery and then there would be a, uh, a negotiations, of course, to get the hostages out, that kind of thing. And if ever there was a situation where we had to make entry, then, you know, it, usually we can't, we can't stay on scene 24 seven. We'll have to be tied into the, uh, in some cases, the, the NYPD say, Hey, you got this, this is yours. Now we, we got other stuff to do. Mm-hmm. Or they may say, Hey, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll work to work with you. And we'll just inter, inter, uh, interface our teams so that you'll do a shift, We'll do a shift, that type of thing. So it's just uh, and so when the time comes to make a deliberate assault to rescue the hostages, that would probably be done by the FBI just simply because, and not necessarily because the NYPD, uh, as, a, as a unique example, has as much as if not more than, than the FBI SWAT resources would have. They have an incredible, incredible uh, uh, ability to call on resources and, and, and at the NYPD, but in most cases, the locals would probably defer to us because we have the manpower and the equipment and resources that they don't have. Uh, And very few um, uh, departments can match us in that case. NYPD being one of them. So there'd be, you know, barricade subject, hostage situation, very high, very high level of danger that could be beyond the capabilities of the uh, average uh, street agent that, and, and so, but then there's a lot of things that fall in between. So if there's a, we've many, many, many times we've done arrests with in conjunction with the K squad, let's say there's a, white collar crime case
0: where
1: okay. one or another, you got, you know, generally, you know, you can call these guys, uh, attorneys and say, Hey, have your guy come in and surrender. And, and, uh, that's it. There's no muscle no fuss, which is a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. If you can, because that would, uh, uh prevent any uh, potential, uh, injury to either us or them. And, uh, but a lot of times you get different cases that are, that there may be a violent person in the middle Uh, Maybe not rise to the level of SWAT, but maybe more violent than uh, the average agent would be prepared to meet. And then we'll just interject SWAT trained agents into the mix. And so we won't deploy the entire SWAT team, but we'll deploy SWAT trained agents to assist in the arrest. So, you know, we'll be uh, maybe two two or three of us would go on the team and we'll intersperse ourselves in the arrest team so we can help uh, control and guide uh, the arrest team and making the, making the apprehension, but, but that's, uh, so there's different, uh, situations it calls for, um, it, it uh, unfortunately that you get a, um, situation where the bosses, the, the management, they become risk averse and they go, you know, I want, I don't want anybody to get hurt on my watch. And, um, if, if, uh, we've got an, if they, e- if I even hear the guy has a gun, or has potential potential for having a firearm, then I'm using SWAT. Well, that's not what we're intended for. Okay, the average agent is fully capable in making arrests of armed subjects. It's just that it, if if the situation involves um, some kind of complex operation, then then yes, yeah, SWAT needs to be used. But it but if it's just your average, you know, uh, knock on a door and make an entry and, and arrest somebody, or you know, do a car stop um in in uh, in a prescribed manner in, at a, at, a, at a place where we're at the in the advantage um that should that should, e- should be easily handled by the average agent it's that i'm told that there's a tendency in the last few years is to use swat for everything and um and you hear a lot of stuff on tv like a swat team hit the house or mm-hmm. you know fbi swat team hits the house well they're not necessarily they. The body armor for the agents is the exact same body armor the SWAT agents wear, and so yeah, you you wear you you, you look like a SWAT guy, but you're not. You yeah. you um if you've got helmets and and uh, and you know uniforms, then you're probably going to be the SWAT team, okay? But if you're just wearing vests and you got long guns, that doesn't make you a SWAT team. That just makes you a typical agent. We'll have uh, you know those types of uh, that type of equipment. So there is a there is a protocol, and it does get abused from time to time. And um, I can only think back into in the, in the news of some of the uh, arrests that have been made that have made the news, and I think, you know, what that was probably not not necessary for a SWAT team to go. If a SWAT team was in fact used, now see a lot of times, like I said, they just say that. You know, it's just a the appearance to a, yeah, to the yeah.
0: novice would go. Oh, I I'm not familiar with firearms or the federal government right. or whatever the case. Oh, that looks like SWAT. Right, but that's right, just a Leo right. that has the accoutrements of just an average law enforcement officer.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the point. If you're not, if if, if you're in a suit and you knock on the door, well, then you're just making a, a typical arrest. But if you're in any kind of body armor or gear, you're you're SWAT. They 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 think you're SWAT, so it's not not necessarily true. But so, Don, anyway, I want but...
0: to I want to drill down on something. So, um. And maybe this would have been good to bring up earlier, but I know that you've you've been overseas, like you bring up uh, complex operations and the need for SWAT. You right. yourself, you have been overseas on the behalf of the FBI. Um, can you talk a little bit about those experiences and what the need was for you to be there?
1: Well, uh, of course, after nine eleven, 11 you know, we we said, you know, we got obviously got some serious intelligence gaps. In, um the um, in both at the CIA level and the FBI level and there were a lot of reasons for that uh, not not the least of which was a law that prevented the CIA and the FBI from communicating with each other when it came to people within the United States uh, really? basically you know the CIA covers everything outside the United States the FBI covers all all uh, everything in the United States and there was a, uh, we call it a Chinese wall. It's a legal term for a uh, separation of information. And we were, uh, this, this was actually put in place by the Clinton administration years ago for whatever reason. There was a, probably a good reason. It's just that it was over implemented, let's say. <clears throat> and then as a result, the CIA wasn't sharing information with us. We weren't sharing information with the CIA. Led to 9-11. After that, we said, hey, you know, we need to make, we need to be able to develop our intelligence better, and we have to get to it faster, and we have to be disseminated quicker, and that type of stuff. So when the, the, the real-time intelligence that was needed to uh, protect the United States after 9-11 was overseas, in Afghanistan, that's where Al-Qaeda was, so that's where we went. We went with the military. Now, we're not, you know, most of us, I would say well. I would say a good majority of these, and and they only sent, by the way, SWAT trained agents. Okay. Okay. And but but the majority of, um, well, I shouldn't say that. In 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 a combat role, we went as advisors. We weren't we weren't uh, we were considered quote unquote non combatants, which was stupid because you know we went out with these guys are there with these, them. You're so you're yeah, guilty we're, we're by embedded, association, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. We're embedded with them. We're, we're embedded with them. And so when they go out on a mission, we go with them. So we're, we're considered, uh, the FBI called us non-combatants, but we, you know, that was, that was not actually true. Many, many of us got into firefights and many of us, you know, nobody got, nobody got wounded or killed, but, but we had, um, uh, we had people then really involved in the thick of it. So, but the point of us being there was to, to, um, Obtain intelligence on the ground in Afghanistan or wherever they put put us. And uh, when we came across raw intelligence, we could immediately pass it back to FBI headquarters and it would be uh, acted upon immediately. For example, uh, we did a, a mission in, in Afghanistan where we captured a guy and we took him back to the the, um, uh, the camp that uh, we were in a, a forward operating base uh, up on the Pakistan border with, and I was embedded with uh, a special forces team with the third group in, uh, uh, think basically the Green Berets, if you will, um, but it was myself and another agent. And we generally, sometimes we both go generally, we'd, if it was a combat mission, only one of us would go and we'd be, unless it was really, you know, complex, but but uh, we would take turns going and on this, on this particular one, they they uh, brought back uh the guy with uh, uh and, in, and in his pocket we found a piece of paper and then and, and I, or I take that back it was not a, we call it pocket litter whatever's in your pocket pieces of paper whatnot but it was actually a no was a notebook like a little spiral notebook you know uh, you know two inches by three inches something like that and inside was everything written in uh, arabic or and, and and so i'm i'm going or pashtun as, as the case may be and um <coughs> But the numbers are numbers, and I saw a number in there that says two hundred two area code, and then, you know, like three two four three thousand, which is, which is just for an example. But that's like the the number of the FBI building. Okay, so but I saw this two hundred two area code in this number, and I said, well, this is Washington D.C. How is it that this guy has this number here in, in his pocket, in in Afghanistan? So we we literally uh, pick up the phone call our uh, headquarters in Bagram and we relay the information on a secure line to the people there and the people there pass it along to the FBI headquarters back in uh, D.C. And by within 24 hours, somebody's running that number down to find out who it belongs to. And they start finding out everything they can about the person who has that phone number. And so I, I don't know what ever happened to that phone number. Could have been it was nothing but could have been it was to a restaurant you know that he ordered some food for who knows but it was a uh, but i you know that's this, that's the kind of thing with intel work you gather information you never know if it um, if it leads to anything unless it's something really big you know so yeah. and you but, were but able was, to was,
0: you were able to expedite that process as you're saying you're there right. you have this individual you get that intelligence from that notebook now you're making a phone call right, right. and you know i'm sure everyone can attest that that has a job there's there's a lot of bureaucracy that can go on and i can only imagine with the type of operations you're performing and the organizations you're working with how difficult it might be to get information from one end to another yeah in the, in the
1: past uh, what the information had to do is it had to go up like from from uh, like over there we were what we were doing was called sensitive site exploitation in other words We'd go in, we'd seize records and documents and computers and hard drives and flash drives and you name it, we're taking it uh, all you know, to be analyzed. But in the old days is if that would happen, uh, then they the information would be gathered up, sent in a big army where they would have some analysts of the Intel branch go through it. The information would be digested and then it would reports would be made and those would be filtered up through Department of Army over to the Pentagon or in the Pentagon, I guess, and then over to liaison UP personnel in, say, the Department of Justice or the FBI, or whatever it is, or, you know, uh, where, whoever it is going to get this information. And this information would then come back down through the channels of the, like, Department of Justice or the FBI all the way down to the case uh, the, the squad in Washington, D.C. To, to run down this phone number, right? Well, that takes months for that to happen. So and every time that every time you go through all these layers of bureaucracy, things get condensed, things get streamlined and you lose the gist of the actual information. And it comes out at the other end. You know, it doesn't mean exactly the same thing as when it was first recovered. So those types of things are what we were there to do. And that was a uh, a something that the army learned from what we taught, basically, the army how to do this, how to basically we're teaching the army how to hit, hit a place and do a crime scene. And they learned very fast. And eventually the FBI finally said after a few years of this and having some very close calls and had some guys injured and that type of stuff, they said, you know what, um, we got too much money tied up in these agents. I think the, I think the army and the Marine Corps and the seals or whatever, you know, whatever it is, I think these guys have got this down now and, um, and they can do it themselves. And uh, that's basically how it happened. So in fact, the, 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 um, the only people I think that, and I forgot what year they stopped that, but it may have been after I retired in 2012, but, um, but they, uh, the, the only people that went over on a semi-regular basis were the people who went over the very first time after 9-11, and that was our HRT. Our HRT guys, the hostage rescue team guys, they went over. Um, right after 9-11 and and embedded with these units and were so successful they just said you know what we're going to expand this field SWAT and that's when uh, you know guys like me got a chance to uh, to get to get uh, have an opportunity if they don't call that to go overseas and and uh, it was was totally voluntary and um, you know and personally I looked at it as you know, this is the biggest thing that ever happened in my lifetime in in in, uh, in terms of uh, you know, threats to the United States. And I was too young to go to Vietnam. So, therefore, um, this is my opportunity to serve. So, I, I raised my hand and, and went over. And that's how I felt about it. And my wife wasn't real happy with me, but, but she understood. And so, I went over and I did my tour. And um, that's just the way it ended up. So, it, it was, I felt like I had to do it.
0: Yeah, you and I, I could hear that from the beginning of your story, right when you when you first enlisted in the armed forces. So, you're, again, kind of just trying to pay it forward. Um, you know, you—you you mentioned that you had a, a six-month stint going undercover. How common is that for an agent to go undercover?
1: Um, fairly common if you are. Um... If you were in the undercover ranks, um, I was kind of caught in between the um, the old old way of doing it and the new way of doing it. The old way of doing it was, you know, hey, uh, you know, uh, somebody'd say we need somebody undercover for this. Who wants to do it? You know, <laughs> and it was, and of course, you'd have to be a little bit crazy to do it. But but I, this was a white collar case. It wasn't there was not there was no real element of danger um, that that at least was was apparent. Okay and um it was a public corruption type case and so i so i'm wearing a suit you know i'm i'm dealing with you know pol- pol- politicians and businessmen and you know there was no danger in it so that so this was kind of a, a situation where a guy that was working the case said i know a guy who, could, who 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 could be would be good for this and they he recruited me out in new york city to come do it and uh, it's because we knew each other mm. and um and he got me you know, i went down i and i had to go through a process and Basically, I was approved to do it, and that was that. And it turned out that the undercover case never really got off the ground, and they had to do it in a different way. They approached it from a different angle, and the case, you know, was uh, well, it took a different path. But I was I was down there for six months, and um, you know, left my family behind and, and assumed a new persona and uh, uh, did that, you know, for for six months. And that was it. It was very it was a interesting and and. I learned a lot, but uh, it wasn't like I was undercover by drugs was uh, there. That is something that, first of all, you need a lot of knowledge to do that. And um, and I don't I'm first admit two areas where I don't have a lot of knowledge is that is drug cases and um, organized crime cases. I have a smattering of of knowledge, but because I've worked both cases on the periphery, but never, uh, never really went into a complex drug drug investigation. So um, I I was there making the arrest with a SWAT team. That's about about as much as I got involved. But the uh, but this case was different. It was uh, it was a a case where we had developed information that there was some political public corruption and we on the part of some politicians. And when we did that and and um, and then we moved on, I came back to New York and that's when I got on the fugitive squad in New York.
0: That's, that's really interesting especially the the volunteer aspect right uh, that is yeah. that's that's very i would it's a very stressful position to be put in uh to volunteer to do that well what? i should add
1: that that's that's what nowadays it's you have to be selected to be an undercover agent and it and it uh and that's and you have to go through a lot of training it's very professionalized now and you can only do it for so long and you have to be evaluated all the time because we have a lot of problems with agents who go into deep cover and they whether it's a foreign counterintelligence investigation or a drug investigation or an organized crime it's uh, you know some of these guys have been under cover for years and they have to keep uh, evaluating to see if they're if they're, their, their mental health is still good this it takes a toll on you because you you're basically living a lie and some people can adapt to it uh, okay and and then turn it on turn it off but over time some people they kind of they kind of absorb that um, the negative aspects of the, of the undercover role and they could turn out to be uh, maybe commit crimes themselves or maybe have mental health breakdown or, or uh, health issues or whatever, or family problems, all kinds of, all kinds of things are, uh, that can come out of these things. That's why they have to be monitored very closely. I did it for six months. White collar case, not a big deal. So it was, yeah. that's kind of how it is, but it's a lot different now.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure the agents are thankful for all those kind of uh measures being taken now. Um yeah. mm-hmm. uh, I I got a couple couple of questions to you just kind of from an outsider's <clears throat> perspective. Uh what you would say to them? So, what is one misconception about the FBI that that you'd like to address?
1: Huh. Well, you know, I don't I I uh I would like to say and given the, um, the, the the recent news reports, is that we aren't all corrupt. Okay, um, everyone I know, everyone they know, the rank and file agents are, uh, you know, very hard, hardcore, hard charging. Uh, follow the Constitution, law abiding. Do it by the do it by the rules. We have, we're an agency that has a lot of policies and rules and regulations because there's a, there's a, there's a disaster behind every one of them. And that's why we have established these things. So uh, when I look at what's going on in the news and I'm, I, I'll just point fingers like this, uh, uh, Andrew McCabe, Peter Stroke and people like that. Okay. The things they did are, are totally illegal. Uh, They they not not only violate policy, but they committed crimes as well, as far as I'm concerned. They should be in jail, you know, as far as as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Now, do now among the FBI in in history, have we had a few bad apples? Yes, we have. I've known a couple. Okay. And I've I've seen what happens to them and and they were dealt with. And and that's what the system is, is provides for you. You have rules and regulations, you have laws, you follow them. And if you don't, you're punished. Period. In this case, uh, uh, you know Comey. Don't get me started on him. He came in, and uh, and it wasn't he. He was probably the worst actor of all the directors. But it started back with Louis Free. Not that he was corrupt, but the policies he put in place when he was director, and then uh, Robert Mueller came along and amplified those policies, and then put in additional bad policies and procedures and, and, and the way things w- were being operated. And then Comey came along, and that was the disaster waiting to happen right there. And so Ray, uh, the new director, Christopher Ray, I'm not 100% sure what his deal is. I'm not impressed. He doesn't strike me as, as being the guy that seems to be the one that's going to turn the FBI around. Um, I know that a lot of reforms have been put in place. Uh, a lot of these people, well, all of these people, I should say, that have been found to have committed uh, uh, infractions of, of uh, the policies and procedures, and then any of them that committed a crime have been fired. Um, but the problem is that uh, I think only one or two were actually prosecuted. And uh, my fear is that there's others we don't know about. And it's the quote unquote deep state, it's the bureaucrat that feels like he's above law that he and and sometimes these guys have uh, they're in every agency um in the fbi i'd like to think we do a pretty good screening of these guys um back when we conduct our background investigations and hire them but you can't let politics you know intervene and in we're supposed to be apolitical that's what you know hoover for all the faults that he had one thing he was good at was getting the dirt on the politicians and he would get the dirt on Democrats and get the dirt on Republicans. And that way he could he could never, neither he, none of them ever had a leg up on the FBI. So we could operate independently. And this has changed over the years. And I've seen it while I was a DOJ has more and more control over us. And they're our parent agency, okay? I understand that. But they're a political organization. They're appointed by a political uh, appointee that comes and goes with the with the president. Okay, so his loyalty should be to the Department of Justice and the rule of law. But I guarantee you, as we see now, it's not it's to the the occupant of the White House. And said i speak of Merrick Garland, specifically um, uh, the other and that's been there's been cases like that in the past. Um, and then I think that uh, that's the problem that, that we need to get away from DOJ. We got to stop Letting these uh, former uh, AUSA's and U.S. attorneys and and, and uh, people like that run our agency, we need to bring in if we if hire somebody from within or bring in somebody from the outside who's uh, totally uh, above reproach, like a a military general or something like that. You know, just somebody that comes in who can run a large organization, doesn't need to know the nuts and bolts of how everything works. That's for us to handle, but we need a ethical and moral guidance at the very top that is independent from Department of Justice. They are corrupt, and I don't trust them as far as I can throw them. Now, there's a lot of good people in the Department of Justice. I've worked with them. The U.S. Attorney's offices and at, in, in all the offices I've been in have been outstanding. Uh, but the U.S. Attorney is political. He's appointed and um, they direct the investigations. They prioritize investigations. And you know, most of the time I work violent crime. Well, that's always a priority. OK, mm-hmm. it, it may not be a national priority, but it's always a priority within the community because it affects everybody a lot mm-hmm. and everybody wants to see violent crime under control. Well, it's, it's but when you to getting into the political prosecutions of corruption and things like that, now you're seeing a uh, more uh, circumspect look at who, you know, how is this going to affect us? How you know? Yeah. How's this going to affect the people I support? You know, uh, how's this going to affect our agency? Uh, things like that. There's a there's a case to be made that a lot of people did not want to investigate Hillary Clinton because they thought she'd be the next president and we would be in big trouble. Well, you can't think like that, okay? And yeah. there's and that that is something that um, various people in government. Uh, need to be uh, independent from, and and it's something that I, the only way you can do that is is uh, is have people that are 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 independent, independent minded. And mm-hmm. I, I I have one of another misconception I need to to uh, I'm just I'm kind of going off tangent here, but but um, I just came to mind I need to say it is one of the things a, a very big misconception is that like I said the FBI that well they, they must be totally corrupt. Well, no. If you stop and think about all the information that you've heard come to light in the past, I don't know, eight years or wherever this has been going on, that information, and where do you think it came from? That came from FBI agents who see that what's going on inside the agency, and they, they tell somebody. They have uh, uh, people in the media. They're not, We're not supposed to talk to the media, but when people are committing what we believe is corruption— then um, then I would then I would I would go against that policy and talk to a person I could trust in the media or go to Congress and report this. We were duty bound to report corruption to our oversight committees in Congress. So this information has been filtering out into um, Congress, the media, that type of stuff. When you hear this stuff on TV, it's coming from somebody on the inside. That's the only way they could know. So and that information tells like Congress where to look when -hmm. when they do these oversight investigations. And uh, that's or in the case of uh, special uh, counsel, all the people that work for the special counsel are FBI agents detailed to the special counsel. All the people who work on on the investigations that are going on in Capitol Hill are FBI agents detailed to Capitol Hill. In fact, one of the plum assignments, and it's not uh, easy, but it's, it's a very prestigious assignment, is to volunteer to be, and then you have to be selected. You can volunteer, but then you must be selected to be an investigator on Capitol Hill. And you, I forget what the term is, may, maybe three years, something like that. But you literally turn in your FBI credentials, and you're issued new credentials, and you're still you know, a federal employee, and nothing changes. You're still an 1811 investigator. And you are issued a, uh, a set of credentials to the to the uh, that are ca- as a Capitol Hill investigator. And you conduct the investigations, You serve subpoenas. You interview witnesses. You do everything you would do as an FBI agent, but you do it for Capitol Hill, the Senate and the uh, House of Representatives. So all these investigations are being done by FBI. Agents. Mm-hmm. So you can't say the entire agency is corrupt because if that was the case, nothing would get done. What you have here is a few bad apples in upper management in the D.C. swamp that is the that have been infected and uh, need to be, uh, ex- be ex- excised from the FBI body. OK. And that's bottom line. So it's it's a uh, so that's a misconception that, that I think yeah. uh, that I, needs to be straightened up. And I and I say that um, no one's more angry with the court, the direction of the FBI over the past few years than I am. Um, you know i I, uh, I i i have i have seen it firsthand and so it's just um, I, I, I need to point out to people though that we're we are not all corrupt just like uh, you know any other agency but this what's going on in the fbi by the way is going on in every other single law enforcement agency in the federal government i've, been, I've talked to friends in the marshals i've talked to friends in the secret service talked to friends at ATF. it's all going on at the upper echelons of the federal law enforcement agencies. Why? Because they spend too much time in Washington D.C. If I was in charge, I would move every federal agency out to various cities across the United States, and no one there would be nothing left in New, in in in, um, in Washington D.C. except uh, the White House and the Capitol. All the agencies would be scattered around the United States, where they have to live with with the uh, the common folk out here. Okay. And uh, and maybe some of this influence would be tamped down because someone back uh, like my brother told me a long time ago who was in the Secret Service. He said, money doesn't talk in D.C. What talks in D.C. is proximity to power. Who has access? And when you're when you're shoved down in Kansas City, guess what? You don't have access to power. You're not there. You can pick up the phone, maybe. But that's about it. But you're not there and you can't. And if you're not there. you A lot is lost on the telephone line so it's a uh it, it is something that these guys the trouble is they socialize together out there they go to all the same parties they i mean they're all part of the elite and uh, and this is at the, i'm talking at the very highest levels and mm-hmm. uh these are the kind of people that you need to break up and scatter them around so they can't do this um they are there they they develop a group think uh they believe a lot of them you know maybe some might be actually corrupt where they they're doing it to feather their bed, uh, you know, get their, uh, uh, get money or get our our, our, our usually it's not, you know, I'm not taking, like they're taking bribes. What they're doing is to, to land a nice retirement job because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, federal employees make a, a decent living, but not a great living. And um, you look at, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned the guys at work like uh, senior executive service, they make a darn good living. Okay. But when they can step out into the uh, private sector, they can double their salary. Okay, and so those are what a lot of them are looking at. If I, if I play, get, play ball here, I can maybe land myself a cushy job. Well, that's corruption, okay? Yep. And so that stuff has to be dealt with. Um, it, it is, a, and, it, and it's as bad as it is in the FBI. It's the same in the military. You know, all these generals, they, they all land themselves nice cushy jobs at defense contractors and think tanks and all that stuff. And, it, and you do, they're talking heads for the, the media and all. Yeah, you, you name it. Although that doesn't pay that much. Sometimes it doesn't pay at all, but,
0: that, but that's,
1: uh, <clears throat> it's, that's it's a, different.
0: That's a really interesting perspective. And I appreciate your insider uh, kind of thoughts there. And I, yeah, I would further highlight. Yeah. Like that. I like the pointing out this information is being curated by, you know, the FBI, the, some of the things that have been divulged publicly um yeah and, and that's just
1: my knowledge of, of how the fbi operates and, and over you know this this, this or the, that those are facts you know insider information i i i don't know if i get I, I rise to that level because i am i know i don't know that much about what goes on the inside the fbi the fbi is very compartmentalized it always has been i i didn't know what was going on on the squad next to me uh mm-hmm. when i was in the office um i didn't need to know um that rarely would i would just come to unless you have to be sitting around talking having a beer with a guy and he and uh hey say what's going on he goes yeah hey, did you hear about this case i'm working and blah 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 he doesn't give you details he kind of gives you a general idea but that's that'd be the, the most i would ever go find out about something like that and if mm-hmm. it's if it's a classified case i'm not going to hear anything about yeah. it and now that i'm retired i'm even more in the dark and no none of us all of us we get together and have a beer and sit around talking. None of us know anything. Everybody goes, well, what are you here? What are you here? I like, none of us here anything. All we do is, well, now we know what we read in the newspaper, or the yeah. newspapers, but what we read online, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's all that we know as much as the average citizen, although we pay attention to things that affect the FBI a lot more closely. So, so that's, yeah.
0: So the average citizen, Don, mm-hmm. based on all of your experiences working at the FBI and in, in, yeah. in the armed forces, what is the best advice you can give to the average citizen?
1: Well, first off, obey the law. And then <laughs> but whenever the uh, law enforcement comes knocking at your door and you didn't call them, you should say, um, you should say nothing. You should say, well, I'd be happy to cooperate with whatever you want to talk to me about, but I want to speak to an attorney first. Period. Okay. And if they want to come in, say no, unless you have a warrant. If they have a warrant, that means they have legal justification to come in. But you don't have to talk to law enforcement. And I would have never said this 20 years ago. I mm-hmm. would I would be, it wouldn't occur to me to say it. I would say, well, sure, you should talk to the police when they come. But not anymore. I, I don't, I, and this goes for all law enforcement, local, state, federal. When they come knocking at your door and they want to talk to you, you ask them what it's about. And if they and if they won't tell you, then I'd say, uh, never mind. I, I don't think I need to talk to you. I'll be talking to my attorney. I mean, it shouldn't take more than a couple sentences for them to explain what this is all about. And then, you, then even then, I was I wouldn't be so sure. I depend on what it was about. If I would talk to somebody like that, because they record everything now, everything you say will be used against you. So there's no way I think I would talk to uh, anyone in law enforcement. Unless I had talked to an attorney first, and then yeah, I'd be more happy to cooperate under with counsel uh, uh, representing me. Just mm-hmm. because I don't—it's not that I don't. Well, I guess I don't trust them, but I don't know them. So why would I talk to somebody I don't know, who has all that authority and power that can't help me? Okay, if they—if I'm—if they think I'm a witness to a crime, well, that's one thing. I'll Talk to the attorney, we'll get that ironed out, and I'll give the information. Fine. But uh but I would not I would not talk to uh anybody in, in uh with a badge or gun. No way in hell. So it's just the way it I'm sad to say that, but it is our sixth amendment right, and by golly, we've gotta start uh uh exercising our rights.
0: Yeah. I that's well said, you know, and I think as you pointed out, there is a power imbalance in these conversations with today's technology. Um, you know I mean? that you got a body cam on; you're you're caught right there, that's being recorded. Um, so you better be, you know, very use good word choice, and the stakes could be high potentially with whatever's occurring. So yeah, I think I think that's good advice, um, Don. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and time today. This is an awesome conversation. Um, and I learned a lot about uh, the work that you've done in, in the FBI.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for letting me vent a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, but I, I retired in 2012. So I've been, <clears throat> I've been, a, I've been away a long time. And and I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. I, I love the FBI and I, uh, you know, I, I love the people I work with and they were the best. And I, I, you know, like I said, once in a while we're across a bad guy, but nine, 99.9% of them are outstanding people. And I had a, I had a great career. I would do it all over. again. Um, I would, uh, I would, but, but law enforcement these days, I, I I don't know. It's, it's a dangerous job. I don't think you have the backing of the government uh, when you, when you go into law enforcement anymore, whether it's. Local, state, or federal, um, uh, and you have to have that. You have to have the backing of the mm-hmm. government, and more importantly, the backing backing of the citizens. So, unless you have that, you uh, you should be really you should really think twice about uh, when you get it. You got to really want to get into law enforcement. It's a very very difficult job, and uh, there's a reason my hair is all white. Well, part of it's hereditary, but I was. But there's an incredible amount of stress that goes with the job, not only on you but your entire family. And, um, you know, it's a, it, but they're, they're, the rewards are also very, very high. So I don't want to give anybody the impression that um, that I have some kind of ax to grab the FBI. I don't. Mm-hmm. It's just that um, right is right and wrong is wrong. And I've always felt that way. I've always dressed, worked my cases that way. And I, I try to live my life that way. And I'm, I'm not perfect. But uh, that's the goal that, you know, I try to hold myself to or the, or the standard I hold myself to. And, um, you know, that's all, it's all I can do. That's all I can
0: do. That wraps up our conversation with Dawn. We talked about how terrorist investigations are conducted, undercover experiences, and the structure of the FBI. Go to this episode's show notes to see any resources Don mentioned during our episode. And lastly, subscribe to the Simple Questions podcast to get notified when our latest episodes are released. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep asking questions.